the aftermath of Myanmar's military coup in 2021, thousands of pro-democracy activists took up arms, fleeing into the countryside to link up with ethnic insurgents and fight back against the regime. We've gained access to some of those now on the front line, in a bitter conflict that's largely hidden from the world's gaze. It's being called the Hidden War, a conflict overshadowed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And thus now often forgotten by the world outside Asia. To the people fighting for survival in Myanmar, it's every bit as significant as events elsewhere. After a military coup in early 2021, thousands of pro-democracy activists began taking up arms against the junta. We've gained access to some of them. People who've been trading their homes and settled lives for underground cells, remote jungle camps, and the uncertain hazards of the front line. Before we start today's interview, please allow me a word or two about our podcast. Even as Myanmar plunges into a civil war because of the military's bloody coup, the international community and media organizations have all but turned their backs on the country and its people. But this humble platform is committed to staying the course. We conduct nuanced, long-form interviews with a variety of guests connected to Myanmar so our listeners can better understand the ongoing crisis. Thank you for choosing to spend the next couple of hours with us today. Today we're going to be covering the PDF and the ethnic armed organizations and the ways in which they have evolved and the ways in which their strategies and military situations have evolved uh, since the coup. Uh, so 
Zach, just in case anyone didn't catch the uh, the first episode, I'll, I'll just give you a chance to quickly um, reintroduce yourself and uh, explain what it is that you do. Uh, my name is Zachary Abusa, and I'm a professor at the National War College, and I focus on Southeast Asian insurgencies and political violence and peace processes. Excellent. Thank you. So let's just jump straight on in. Uh, the military we discussed, uh, their numbers were not as large as they said that their numbers were. And they, they've been, you know, bleeding men um, quite, uh, quite heavily uh, since, uh, since the fighting really started in earnest. But let's look at the PDF. The, the PDF didn't exist uh, at all prior to the coup. And yet now we have reports from the NUG of 750 PDF battalions directly under NUG control and many other armed groups that are not directly under the control of the NUG. Uh, can you shine a light on, on where these PDF groups came from, how, how they, they raised such large numbers in such a short time? Well, I'm a little suspect of some of the numbers the NUG uses, but without a doubt, uh, the number of PDFs has mushroomed around the country. They started getting uh, going, uh, a, you know, in mid uh, uh, 2021, but it really wasn't until the declaration of a defensive war in September of 2021 that they really started to increase their operations. Um, they came from nothing. And a, a lot of it were students, people who had fled the cities, uh, uh, getting some training uh, here. Uh, some of the more established ethnic armed organizations provided uh, a small degree of military training, uh, arms uh, training, uh, and, and a limited number of weapons for them. And very few people actually gave the PDFs any hope. Um, here they were, these poorly trained uh, um, but well-meaning uh, individuals who were uh, going to go up against a military that has a 60-year track record of um, just being absolutely brutal uh, and uh, uh, no-holds-barred type uh, uh, counterinsurgency. And, you know, there were a lot of predictions that, that the PDFs were just going to be cannon fodder. And I think what's so impressive is the degree to which they have spread. So you really are getting these PDFs emerging in every one of the country's 330 townships. Uh, and some of the large townships have multiple PDFs emerge. Um, and they are starting to become better armed. Um, at first, it was quite literally self, self-arming themselves. So up in Chin State, you saw uh, people using single uh, uh, action, bolt action, uh, hunting rifles. Um, and as they ambushed uh, uh, government forces, they acquired more arms and more ammunition. Um, and that started to happen throughout the country, that, that with some uh, very good early ambushes, uh, they were quickly able to capture some weapons, some ammunition, and, and each uh, successful ambush has garnered them more weapons and more ammunition. So we, we can't forget about the importance of battlefield confiscations for arming uh, the PDFs. Um, 
So they have grown. The big issue for the NUG, of course, was how do you maintain any semblance of command and control? How do you have any sort of discipline when you have these uh, PDFs spread throughout a very large country across multiple combat zones? Uh, and in many regions, there are internet uh, blackouts and communication blackouts. So it's actually very physically hard to communicate with them. Um, and so the, the big thing was for the NUG leadership was getting these PDFs to at least nominally accept the NUG leadership, uh, to pledge allegiance to the NUG and their stated political goals of turning, uh, uh, defeating the military junta and establishing an independent uh, federal republic uh, with considerable autonomy throughout the country. And getting these different PDFs to um, accept the NUG's uh, uh, decision-making. So, for example, on the treatment of prisoners of war, getting all these different PDFs to hold themselves up to international standards uh, in clear juxtaposition to the, the Tatmadaw. Um, so they've tried to get these groups to uh, be part of the chain of the command. But that was really hard at first because one of the ways that you can do so as a guerrilla force is by uh, funding them or arming them. And in the onset, the NUG had very little funds to do this, and they uh, certainly did not have a, a steady supply of weapons and ammunition uh, to uh, uh, win over support. So it's been a real challenge. Um, so far, I give the uh, NUG a lot of credit uh, for what they have been able to do against all odds. Uh, the, the people have demonstrated incredible courage in all of this. Um, and it's not just the, the PDFs. It goes back to just the civil disobedience movement that here we are in September uh, 2022 and around the country on a daily basis, you have these flash mobs, uh, these protests, uh, by youth, by elderly population, um, against and demonstrating against a regime that has shown for 20 months a willingness to gun these people down, to arrest them, to destroy their lives. Um, and yet people still feel motivated enough, they still feel it's important enough that they continue the struggle. And, you know, the PDFs are, are simply another manifestation of that. Excellent. I think that's a really nice sort of overview. And I, I want to sort of focus a little bit on that that transition because they really did come from nothing. And these people had no weapons. Uh, you mentioned those single uh, action, bolt action uh, hunting rifles. Uh, a, a lot of the, the rifles that I believe are locally referred to as Tumi rifles, very, very dated, very long barreled uh, weapons. And, and yet, despite this, we actually saw very large numbers of people putting their hands up saying, I want to do something. I want to join the resistance in some way, shape, or form, even if it's if it's non-conflict or even if it's uh, very clandestine, if it's you know surveillance, what have you. And 
I think the NUG, I agree with you. I think the NUG has done a lot of really good work. I think the NUG has managed to raise a very um, surprisingly uh, sort of competent counteroffensive. But the, the PDFs arose before the NUG started getting on that uh, bandwagon. I think the early days of the PDFs, it was really just people trying to do uh, something. Do we know anything about the operations at that time or what, what capacity people had or whether there was any success in those very early days of just people with willpower, but who didn't have weapons, who didn't have the training, who didn't have the skills, trying to do something to slow the military down? Like, was there any progress being made? Yeah, I think you have to look at the emergence of those PDFs, not necessarily as being top-down driven by the NUG, but but bottom-up and largely people acting in self-defense uh, simply because the uh, Tatmadaw has this egregious record of human rights abuses. I mean, human rights abuses are part of their strategy. Uh, it is part of their doctrine, uh, forecuts uh, doctrine of counterinsurgency. So I think these groups started to emerge uh, really trying to protect themselves and their community against this incredibly brutally uh, authoritarian and rapacious military. Um, and that only then, when they started to proliferate around the country, was there this sense that, okay, we have to organize them and get them to at least agree on the, a common end state and, and some operational uh, behavior. Mm. And so that sort of moves us into this, this command structure. Not all of the PDF, that, or not all of these different groups that exist fall under the NUG. And we've heard different words. We've heard PDF. We've heard uh, LDF, Local Defense Forces. We've heard, you know, uh, in Chin, uh, the CDF, the Chinland Defense Forces, you know, made quite a name for themselves, um, especially during the, the assaults on, on uh, Tanlang. Um, you know, we've heard the UGs, the I think the, the underground guerrillas. Is there any systematization to these terms? Is there any reliability behind what these labels actually refer to? Or, or is it sort of a mishmash? I think it is a mishmash. And uh, I'm not sure that, that there is any uh, systemic uh, program to, to get things and to, to normalize them. Um, I largely think of the PDFs as being at least nominally committed to the NUG's chain of command. Uh, I've, I think of the local defense forces more as outside of the chain of command. Uh, some of the PDFs are not under the chain of command, but but there is an active attempt to, to lure them in to get them to come in, especially now that the NUG has resources. They do have access to uh, guns and ammunition. So... Um, you know, that gives the NUG a lot uh, greater leverage when it comes to negotiating with these different PDFs and, and getting them to coordinate their activities. And, and that's a very important thing is that, you know, these PDFs are really localized. Uh, they are there in their township. They are there often uh, operating in, in just a portion of a township. And 
they actually have an incentive from a military point of view to start coordinating with one another, to share intelligence on troop movements, on activities, and to help each other plan attacks or or uh, share supplies and ammunition. Um, so that's been important, but uh, it's hard to do in uh, uh, when you're doing this on the fly uh, in the face of government counterattacks and with limited means to communicate. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's important to note that militaries of all organizations seem to love structure. They love chain of command. They love to have a clear idea of who has authority over whom, when, and how. And as much as we hate the Dumbledore, we could at least accept that they are, by and large, a systematized and organized um, organization. Even if they have a lot of internal conflict and problems, they do have a clear org chart. Without uh, the PDF and, and the NUG having that that level of clarity of understanding, well, who's really in, who's really out, who's part of the chain of command, who can be relied upon to follow specific instructions. Is is there an impediment to the NUG and the PDF collectively operating at the the efficiency they could be operating at? Are they sort of getting in each other's way? Are they being hamstrung by this problem? Uh, Fair question. I don't think we could ever really know that uh, with any degree of certainty. Um, on the one hand, the organic nature of these PDFs and the, the way that they emerged out of their local communities with uh, real legitimacy from the population. And remember, most of these PDFs are still funded by donations from you know, their impoverished uh, neighbors uh, who don't have a lot to give, um, but that they are arming themselves, uh, fighting locally, have uh, knowledge of the terrain um, and are working to defend their communities, gives these this kind of very horizontal network of PDFs uh, a lot of strength. Uh, and, and that's one reason why the, the Tatmadaw, despite uh, an, an advantage in firepower and mobility is really having trouble dislodging these PDFs. It's it's the fact that they just have so much legitimacy on the ground. Um, obviously, the NUG would like to find a way to harness uh, all those different PDFs around the country uh, and make sure that they are still part of a chain of command, that they stay committed to the NUG's long-term political end state, mm. um, and that they are not uh, uh, going off the reservation, not doing things that uh, might be tactically smart but strategically stupid, like committing their own war crimes, and this has happened, mm. uh, killing a POW's uh, uh you know, is not something that look makes the NUG look good because they're always trying to say we are better than the Tatmadaw. We hold ourselves to these international standards. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the NUG leadership can get very upset when uh, you do have these violations of, of the, the rules of war uh, mm-hmm. by the different PDFs and, and is trying to maintain some degree of... of discipline in the ranks. And of course, now the NUG has a lot more leverage over the PDFs because 
some are getting funds um, and uh, some are getting weapons and some are getting ammunition. Um, and uh, that that's probably the single most important thing that the NUG has at their disposal in order to kind of, I don't want to use the word compel, but to get the PDFs in line and keep them in line because everyone needs more resources. And I think it's a very relevant um, thing to bring up at this point because you know you've mentioned this desperate need for ammunition and and for weaponry uh, and and the sort of materiel and training imbalance between the Tamador and uh, and the PDF. There is a long-standing. Um, I don't want to call it a cliche because it's not baseless. There's a, there's a long-standing belief within strategic and military circles that a a group of people who are highly motivated and who are familiar with the territory stand uh, a very strong chance, even against an enemy which is numerically superior, uh, materially superior, uh, and possibly even which has a better internal. Uh, structures and organization. To what extent would you say that that general rule of thumb or principle is true and applies in the Myanmar context? Oh, I think it's it's imperative. Uh, I think it's a very true statement. Uh, the PDFs uh, on the ground have legitimacy from their local communities. They are seen as acting in a very just cause uh, of self-defense against this brutal uh, military that is simply trying to terrorize the population. The NUG, for all of its faults, uh, is still perceived as the most legitimate governing force in the country. Um, and, and they do have faults, and there are limits to what you can do as a shadow government with limited resources. Um, but all of this is, stands very clearly against the military, which uh, has absolutely no legitimacy. Uh, they've run the economy into the ground. Uh, they've undone 10 years of economic progress. Uh, 40 to 50% of the population is now living uh, in, in poverty. Uh, the chat lost 60% of its value. Uh, foreign investors have largely fled the country. Uh, there are limits on uh, 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 foreign exchange and hard currency, which has hurt the entire import sector. Um, this will have spillover effects on the uh, overall uh, uh, agricultural uh, uh, sector. And of course, the banking sector is all but collapsed. So, you know, here you have a, a government, a, a military government that has collapsed the economy, that is absolutely reviled by the population right now, not just amongst the ethnic minorities. Um, you know, it's war in the Bama heartland right now. And a lot, I, I don't think we can overstate just how illegitimate a government the, um, the Tatmadaw and their SAC is Unfortunately, the international community is not caught up with that realization, but but everyone on the ground has. Fair enough. And so, despite the the international community's sort of failure to really step up and provide the support that, by by moral right, they ought to be, um, 
that has not stopped the operations of the NUG. And, and as you've noted quite a few times so far, we've gone from having you know these these archaic hunting weapons. And for the record, Myanmar is not a heavily militarized society. It's it's a country that has a a sort of military cult and has a very uh, let's call it a, a finance sink of a military. But the people themselves are not typically armed. Military service is not compulsory. Um, it, it's it, there's not a high rate of gun ownership. I mean, while I lived there, I don't think I ever saw a civilian once with with any firearm under any circumstance. I was I was there for a few years, so it's not a very heavily you know trained and militarized nation. And yet now these PDF are getting ammunition. They are getting weapons in. Um, what what has changed? What has shifted? Like how how has this been brought about? Um, again, in part, it's very good ambushes uh, that that got this PDF movement started. Um, there, you know, some ethnic armed organizations provided some weaponry at first, but but very limited amounts. So, you know, the, the, the most important quartermaster for any insurgent army is, is the adversary. Um, so every gun, every pistol, every automatic weapon, every uh, uh, mortar shell uh, that is captured is not just something that can't be used against you, but, but it is uh, part of your arsenal now. And so the PDFs have done a very good job, especially in trying to figure out which units are not going to be putting up real fights. So, for example, some of the more static territorial defense forces uh, uh, are sometimes more willing to uh, uh, surrender uh, than to fight to the last man that you might see in the uh, uh, light infantry divisions. Um, so that's been very important. Um, the Some of the established ethnic resistance organizations, uh, in particular, um, the Kachin and the, uh, the Wa, uh, do have the capacity to make arms and manufacture ammunition. Um, there is a black market in this country. Um, it just costs more. And, and we know demand is way up uh, simply because uh, the prices for black market weapons and ammunition is soaring now. Um, it's about four times the price of before the the coup uh so demand is is quite high some people are making a lot of money and that's it's very surprising the the united Wa state army is a very interesting case and i'm glad you brought them up because they are are quite potent um i believe they were even Wa state such as it is called right. was I think the only territory that was that was designated as a special administrative district, um, higher higher ranked in autonomy than the special administrative zones. I'm hoping I hope I'm not confusing those. And it seems that the the Tamado gave the Wa a reasonably wide berth for a long time, and the Wa have not, at least at the last that I checked, have not officially joined either side of this conflict. So are you saying that despite officially not being party to the conflict, they're actually engaged in 
economic trade as part of the ongoing hostilities? Yeah, before I answer that, let, let's kind of back up and, mm-hmm. you know, with all these different ethnic armed organizations, they, they fall into three broad categories. They either uh, pledged allegiance and support the NUG. Um, some do more than that and actively fight alongside the NUG and are important allies uh, to the NUG. There are some that have pledged support to the NUG but are kind of sitting back not doing very much. Um, there are some uh, organizations that have pledged allegiance to the SAC and want to remain part of that because they believe that the the military uh, being spread very thin right now will reward them. They will give be given uh, different contracts. Uh, they will be given uh, greater ability to uh, control natural resources in their territory. They will be rewarded in some way. And then, of course, you have uh, uh, some groups that have been largely agnostic. That they haven't pledged uh, uh, support for the NUG or the, uh, the SAC. And in part, some might be kind of waiting for the right time. Um, maybe we could make the case that the Arakan army is is in that position right now, mm-hmm. that they're kind of been waiting. Um, and now that the military is launching attacks on them, they, they feel, okay, we can fight back in self-defense. Um, you know, they have 30,000 men under arms. They've kept their powder dry for the past few years. I think the military is absolutely insane to, to start a new front uh, with them, but they're, they're not the smartest guys. Um, so you have groups like that. The WA have largely uh, sat this out and not pledged allegiance to, to either side, um, I think in large part because they control the very lucrative uh, drugs trade uh, that is fueling uh, Southeast Asia right now. The, uh, things like methamphetamines, or ketamine, or, or some of the other synthetic drugs are pouring out of Myanmar in record amounts. And it's not just Myanmar, it's, it's almost all the Shan states. And so I think groups like the United Wa State Army are just doing very well from the current situation. They're able to sell some arms on the black market uh, by not pledging allegiance publicly to the MUG. The military is largely leaving them alone, and they are consolidating their power along the Chinese border uh, by not having active conflict there. The Chinese are pleased because the last thing the Chinese want is war spilling over right up to the border. So I, I think the WAV played this uh, in their a very selfish way, but they've played it very well for themselves. And I... <sighs> At the risk of, of calling for conjecture, um, the the Wa State administration and the Wa State military have been notably closely connected to Chinese political interests, so much so that much of Wa State is done in the Chinese language, like a mm-hmm. lot of the signs are in Chinese language, all this sort of uh, stuff is going on. Can we um, come to any conclusions or assumptions as to Chinese state interests in the decisions that WA has made, or can we assume that these are completely independent decisions that the UWSA has made for itself? 
the UWSA is led by ethnic Chinese. Um, they are not ethnic Wa, they're ethnic Chinese. Um, and the senior leadership of the organization is almost all ethnic Chinese. Um, so that's the first thing we should start with. Mm-hmm. Um, they have long been supported by the Chinese. And and the Chinese, it's not that the, the Chinese government is committed to or wants the breakup of Myanmar. It's not that they want the, the Wa to secede from the union of Myanmar. It's that supporting groups like the UWSA gives the Chinese leverage in the country. They can dial up support for the Wa when they're angry at Naypyidaw. They can dial it back when there's something from Naypyidaw they really want. Um, So the Chinese play a a, a real double game here. But I think the research of Yun Sun of um, the Stimson Center for, for many years has actually done a great job in showing that Chinese um, Chinese activity and kind of interests in that region are not necessarily coming out of Beijing. Uh, we're seeing much more uh, uh, of the Yunnan government uh, having their own policy towards Myanmar rather than the central government. Uh, and and often they're at odds uh, when when you get large scale rough refugee flows. Um, Beijing is unhappy and kind of tries to reassert control over foreign policy. But I think that the Yunnan government has so much influence over border trade, over the special economic zones that are proliferating uh, in Myanmar and and as well as in Laos and and Cambodia. Um, So I think those are important things to note. Interesting. So it's quite a complicated international uh, dimension go, going on there. Um, so let's let's turn a little bit to the Arakan Army. Now, the Arakan Army is one of the larger ethnic armed organizations. My understanding is the Arakan Army is functionally uh, trisected into like a Rakhine division, uh, I think a Kachin division, and, and one that's operating somewhere in the east of the country. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's my understanding. Okay, so is it the case that all three of these have tried to avoid conflict thus far, or is it just the Rakhine branch? Um, certainly the Arakan army branch uh, that has been uh, kind of in the east of the, the, the country has been, has, has fought more. I think the Arakan, the main group of the Arakan army, though, um, has largely been quiet since the um, coup. Right before the coup, they signed a, a an informal ceasefire uh, with the military. They were not part of the formal peace process in that the government was holding with different EAOs. It was just a military-to-military ceasefire. Very simply, the Arakan army was able to fight the Tatmadaw to a standstill, uh, but they did not have enough strength to, to actually prevail. And since the coup, the military has been so preoccupied, they've had to deal with so many other 
fronts, and, and not just the traditional fronts against the KMU or the Kachin Independence Army. Um, you know, they've now had to fight in Chin State. They've had to fight uh, in the Bama heartland in Seigang, um, right? So the military has just been so preoccupied uh, with the, the mushrooming up of PDFs around the country, um, and a concerted war against them. And in that period of time, the Arakan army and their political arm have just done such a, a very good job in kind of using the military's distraction to increase their own uh, autonomy. And, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but they've been building up their capacity to govern uh, and provide social services. Uh, they've certainly expanded their reach. And, you know, their military is around 30,000. It's probably maybe the, the best, if not perhaps the second best in terms of uh, being professionally armed and equipped of all the different uh, ethnic armed organizations. And again, um, while everyone else has been fighting uh, since 2001, uh, excuse me, 2021, um, you know, these guys have kept their powder dry. Uh, they're they're rested, they're uh, well-equipped, they're well-armed, uh, they're ready to go. Um, so I, I think that they're in a position that they don't necessarily want to fight, uh, but the military is simply not going to accept their assertion of uh, sovereignty and uh, mm -hmm. de facto uh, uh, self-governance. And, um, you know, the military is picking fights and, and they've got to be very careful. Uh, what we see in Rakhine is a tactical uh battlefront that has strategic consequences because that really spreads the Tatmadaw way too thin. Mm. So trying to understand the mentality of the ethnic armed organizations, see, so I mean, hopefully you can help me with this. On the one hand, the ones who are trying to stay out of the conflict have to reckon with the NUGs uh, sometimes heavy-handed rhetoric, basically saying that if you're not with us, you're against us, and we're going to remember this. So if they're actively allied to the SAC, does that mean that they believe that the SAC is going to win this conflict and also that they believe they can trust promises and agreements and concessions that the SAC makes to them, despite the fact that the military have a long-standing tradition of not honoring their agreements? Or is it more the case that ethnic armed organizations are trying, or some of them are trying to play to this idea of whoever wins, we want to keep our powder dry, as you say, so that whoever comes out on top, as battered and beleaguered as they are, we will then be in a powerful position to push for our own autonomy, SAC or NUG. Like, do we understand the mentality behind their decision making? I think you described it quite well, uh, especially the latter point. Um, let, let me back up a little bit and say, despite its faults, the NUG has been able to win over the support of important EAOs. Uh, not, not completely the, the Arakan army and certainly not the United Wa State Army, but, but many others they've been able to win over and some smaller ones as well. And the reason they've been able to win over the support 
cohort of these groups is they actually have a positive political end state, something that addresses the grievances uh, of the ethnic armed organizations and which offers them the potential, and I'm not saying that they're going to succeed in this, but at least the potential of having a truly autonomous democracy, a federal system, a federal democracy. Um, And, you know, I think they look and say, look at the military's history. Uh, It's been a history of divide and conquer. It's been a history, 60-year history of uh, offering uh, autonomy and then betraying us, having temporary ceasefires until they were strong enough to come back at us. And there was never any meaningful move towards uh, establishing a federal system. So you get these different groups that are uh, willing to support the NUG because they're they're more trustworthy. The military just has this horrific track record of betrayal. Um, now, it doesn't mean that the NUG cannot squander that uh, if they do not uh, actively uh, continue to develop what a constitutional order looks like should they win. Um, they need to uh, continue to constantly assuage some of these ethnic armed organizations because at the end of the day, there's still a majority Bama uh, organization. And, you know, there, there might be greater representation uh, 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 from the ethnic minorities within the NUG, uh, but still it's a Bama-dominated organization and there's always going to be mistrust. And if you are the military, the you look at the strength of the NUG. If you if if anyone in the military is is can do an honest assessment, and they look at the strength of the NUG, they would see that it's the NUG's success in holding together this kind of multi-organization alliance, this coalition. So the so the military, if they're smart, would focus on how do we break apart that alliance structure? And we see inklings of it. You know, almost every day there are news reports coming out of Napadaw of, you know, another ceasefire meeting that, that the military has brought in people from different organizations for the ceasefire, including people that are right now aligned with the NUG. And so the military really thinks that given the amount, uh, a, a certain amount of time, uh, resources, uh, promises of, of greater autonomy, uh, promises of greater wealth, uh, that they can peel away uh, the NUG's support. I mean... <laughs> I, I may be vaguely remembering this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I seem to recall an incident in which quite a few years back, the military invited the leadership of one of the ethnic armed organizations to uh, a round of talks. And on the very day that the leadership had left their base to come to to uh, parlay with the military, the military arranged an airstrike on the base. You know this, and and that was not the only incident of that kind that I've heard of. Like, 
is there any hope for the for the for the military to demonstrate uh, trustworthiness in the eyes of these ethnic armed organizations? I could not imagine why any of those organizations would trust the military one iota. Uh, I am not familiar with that particular incident you recount, but I have seen very similar things in the past um, that once uh, they're, they're willing to continue fighting uh, while they have the leadership uh, there to talk. Um, I don't believe the military has ever negotiated in good faith. Um, their goal or their idea of a peace process is that these different ethnic armed organizations come to Napadaw and lay down their arms. Maybe they get hired as border uh, defense forces uh, for the military. They become a military-backed uh, militia. But, uh, you know, the, the military has never addressed any of their core grievances. They've never honestly uh, uh, attempted to create a federal republic where there is a devolution of political and economic power. So I don't know why at this state, in this day, 60 years after independence, that any of these EAOs would ever trust the military. Um, but it's amazing what happens with greed. Uh, you know, when when some of these leaders have, are tired of fighting in the jungle and they want to secure wealth and power to pass down to their children and grandchildren, um, sometimes cutting deals with the military uh, is, is attractive. And even though the military will often then violate the ceasefire years later and, and go back to war against these groups. I mean, it just seems ridiculous, but it, it's, there's that old adage of never, never assign to malice what you can explain away with incompetence and remembering that decisions are always brought by individual human beings who are subject to the whims and to the desires that individual human beings are are plagued by helps to put this in context, but surely what one would imagine that the ethnic armed organizations would look at the unfolding tableau and think the biggest thorn in our side since, since independence has been the military. And now is the best opportunity because if, if groups like the United Wa State Army, if groups like the Arakan Army, if, if all of these very large groups, uh, you know, the KNDF, uh, oh, sorry, the, the, the KNU's military, um, the KIA, some of these collectively, we're talking about, I think, over 100,000 men under arms and have been trained for a long time. They're battle-hardened troops. They're highly motivated. They could, they could decisively sway this conflict and accelerate the eradication of the of the Tamador hegemony and and therefore accelerate the development of of a new federated uh, Myanmar system and therefore improve their own positions by by helping to guarantee prosperity in their regions and and greater devolution of power under a civilian government why are we not seeing that is it just the mistrust that the NUG is genuinely going to bring that change is it that preparation for having to fight post revolution uh, against a different enemy, or or is it just a reflex action to try and stay out of it and conserve resources? Yeah, boy, I, I wish I knew the answer to your question because it's so critically important for for Myanmar and its future. One would think that the 
NUG really has the best thing on offer for these different ethnic armed organizations in terms of a true true commitment to uh, creating a federal republic with considerable devolution of political and economic powers. Um, and yet we really don't see the full-throated support of the NUG. And, and so that begs the question, why? And I go back to the fact that even though the NUG is a more inclusive organization than the NLD government, it's still Obama-dominated organization. And I think people remember the NLD government, you know, from 2015 to 2020, had uh, was not the, the real partner in the, the ceasefire process that they were expecting it. Um, I think they were really expecting the, the NLD to come out and be much more willing to stand up uh, for the rights of the ethnic minorities, to stand up to the military. And I, I think a lot of people were very disappointed and, and mm -hmm. kind of said, yeah, it comes down to the fact that it, the, they're, they're Burmese. Uh, um, and that is, at the end of the day, they will always uh, run the country in the interest of the, the Bama majority. Um, and so I, I know the NUG is working very hard to kind of address that trust deficit. Um, but at the end of the day, I imagine that many of these EAOs are going to sit there and say, can we ultimately trust the NUG? Um, and the military is coming in on a regular basis with, with promises. Uh, I, now, I personally don't think they should trust the military. There's such a long history of betrayal. Um, and I really do believe that the NUG provides only uh, kind of the only positive uh, vision for the country moving forward. You know, one thing I often will ask people uh, when they kind of push back on me and say, come on, the NUG really couldn't have uh, be that progressive and everything. I, I would say to them, look, what is the military's vision of the country? What does the future of Myanmar look like to the SAC right now? Um, this is not a progressive vision. This is an, as regressive as it gets. Uh, ask, you know, when people push back, I ask, what does the, the country look like for ethnic minorities? What does it look like for uh, civil military relations? What does it look like for the economy? And you just can't see any uh, positive vision in any of those fronts moving forward. Uh, they're so incompetent. Uh, they're so psychotic. They're so power hungry. They're so greedy um, and self-serving. Um, I, I just don't see it. Fair enough. And so another element to this that I, I was really fascinated by early on in 2021 was seeing what was happening when people were trying to join the PDF or, or what existed prior to the PDF as such, right? Resistance groups. What we saw was a large scale movement of people, some who just wanted to fight and some who needed to get out of cities so they, they avoided capture, going into ethnic territories, particularly the people in Yangon, many of them were fleeing to uh, KNU controlled territory yeah. and many of them joined 
um, the the Kareni Defense Forces. Um, so there seems to have been this sort of shift <coughs> with regard to the ethnic divide, not necessarily among the political and and leadership, but down on the bottom as regards um, people. Do do you think that there is at least among the general population, a a warming of relations between the ethnic groups, and and a greater sort of softening of those barriers, basically. From the public, yes. Um, you know, the eighty eight generation clearly owed a lot of gratitude towards the KNU and and some of the Kreni, the the people that that controlled the the Thai border region, very important to them. Um, I think people largely um, became very uh, inured to the plight of the ethnic armed organizations, um, kind of post-Tensing. A lot of the fighting had... uh, gone down. There was a ceasefire process. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of sympathy uh, towards the ethnic armed organizations. I think people thought they were being offered enough. Um, but uh, right now, you know, when the, the military is waging just this horrific war against their own population, there, there is greater sympathy and, and an awareness like, okay, this is not just uh, them going after ethnic minorities in remote border regions with, with limited uh, access to the internet where information is doesn't come out real, uh, uh, where there's conflicting information or, or, or little information. Now, you know, people are very aware of what the military is willing to do against even their own majority population to hold on to power. And I think the sympathy from the public and the attitude towards the um, different ethnic armed organizations is is much more uh, uh, sympathetic. Um, I, I hope it lasts. I, I really hope that this is not a short-term phenomenon that people are simply using uh, the ethnic armed organizations while they need them now uh, to fight the Tatmadaw, and and then we'll kind of ignore the promises. Uh, but I, I really hope that that the general public uh, really becomes much more uh, empathetic and uh, supportive of the ethnic armed organizations and committed to that vision that the NUG has laid out about establishing a true federal republic. I mean, hope so, and and I think a lot of the people who are fighting today uh, can only be fighting as a result of the work that those ethnic armed organizations did in taking them in, offering them shelter, training them, providing them with with weapons and and ammunition, uh, particularly in the earlier days of two thousand twenty one. Mm-hmm. So let let's sort of get down to the nuts and bolts here. Is there any way to quantify the actual growth? In, in sheer capacity uh, with the PDF because we've we've gone through this period of resistance. Then we went through the official declaration of the People's Defensive War and we've heard repeated statements from uh, both the President and the Prime Minister and, and the Minister of Defense saying we are going to move into a phase of offensive war where we are actually taking the fight to the military proactively. Um, 
is does that actually track with changes on the ground, with changes in tactics and changes in in success rates, and and is there any way to measure how the PDF have grown and developed? All right. So there have been a number of different studies of late that are trying to look into this. Um, uh, Dr. Shona Lung. Uh, of the University of Zurich and uh, along with IISS has kind of been trying to map these distinct battlefronts in the country. And, um, you know, she's able to show where the violence is occurring and and concentrating. Uh, uh, It's been concentrated in what are the current hotspots. Another study by uh, the Special Advisory Group of uh, a Council of Myanmar has uh, recently came out with a study that kind of looked at the question of effective control. Um, And they argued that the NUG, along with their allied or affiliated EAOs, uh, now control about 52% of the country. uh, And they found that the military's effective control is now down to around 17% of the country. So the major city centers uh, and then kind of some roads and and communications hubs. 17%. yeah, they said it's that low. I I'm, I personally think that's uh, that's way too low. Um, but there yeah, are the special advisory council for Myanmar's document came out earlier this month. They said twenty two percent, if I remember correctly. I thought it was seventeen. You might be right. I I, I could be botching my numbers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But I, I think what they're trying to say is the rest of that is is up for grabs, right? It is hmm. contested space. Um, and I, I think that's uh, a, an accurate assessment that there is a lot of territory out there that is neither under firm NUG or their allied EAO control. And the military certainly is not able to control it fully or to provide any social services. Um, so I don't think we can fully measure this. There are different groups and individuals uh, and organizations that are, are really trying to measure this. Um, it, it takes a lot of work. It's not perfect. Um, you know, this is not uh, Ukraine where, where it's a conventional force and, and battle lines uh, are clearer and they shift uh, on a daily basis. Uh, contested space in a guerrilla warfare uh, in a guerrilla conflict, uh, is is much harder mm. to measure. Um, nonetheless, I think without a doubt the NUG should be very pleased that just over a year of declaring their defensive uh, war, that they are in the position they are. They have not lost ground; they have gained ground. Um, now, the shift to phase two operations. Uh, does pose some challenges. Uh, what this means is that the, the 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 NUG and their PDFs are not just sufficient or, or content with kind of self defense and and ambushing the military uh, when they come into territory controlled by the NUG or or the EAOs, um, but they're actually trying to gain territory. They're trying to go on the offensive. And that might work pretty well in the rainy season when the military's mobility is is hampered. 
But I really caution the NUG because I worry that their logistics supply cannot keep up with them. And the last thing that, that the NUG wants is to have, to be overextended, to have their forces spread way too thinly and, and not have uh, sufficient arms and ammunition or the means to get those arms and ammunition to those frontline troops. Um, I really do not believe that the NUG and their PDFs should be really fighting the military uh, force on force. Um, I don't think it's smart to fight the military on its terms on a sustained basis. I, I just don't think it, it's possible given their limited resources to do this. Um, I think they have to think very carefully about can they sustain this if this becomes a protracted war, one, two, three years? Uh, will they have the resources to do this? And the other thing that they need to focus on more is uh, targeting the military's ability to wage war. So going after the military's logistics network, their supply, their armaments factories, um, the economy, which is already shaky. Um, but they really have to go after the military's ability to wage war. Um, going force on force, trying to fight the military in a conventional fashion is just not sustainable. And so what is it that they're doing? Like, How have the tactics and the strategies of the PDF evolved? Because, again, I don't know how reliable the numbers are that that, that come out, obviously everyone has their own bias, but we're hearing very, very favorable casualty ratios. Um, there was a, an incident, I think a, a month or two before where they sent a force of some 300 to try and take a, 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 a stronghold that was held by a defense team of 30 and the Tamador 300 force failed to take that, um, failed to take that position. So we're seeing some very favorable numbers. So what, what is, what is the strategy that the PDF are using that has led to this success? Yeah, again, th that's largely phase one operations, defensive, and, and knowing the terrain, luring the, the Tatmadaw in, um, and, and fighting a defensive battle uh, is always something that benefits a resource-limited uh, military like the PDFs. Um, and they, they've done a great job with that. They've really worn down and hollowed out the military and it's worked for them so far and they've been able to capture a lot of weapons and ammunition. They simply think that that's the military can kind of withstand that. They can take those body blows on a regular basis and it's not going to, to lead to the demise of the military regime. And so their thinking is that they really have to go on the offensive. The problem is, you know, they don't have the mobility. Uh, you know, they don't have helicopters to, to transport them. They don't have large lorries to, to move them around the country. Um, the PDFs are still masters of their terrain. You know, they are locally based. Uh, that's what gives them strength. And, and now that you're trying to get them to operate outside of their immediate territories is, is going to prove to be challenging. And um, again, they've, they've outperformed the military uh, 
the military has also underperformed, uh, but but we have to give the PDFs credit for what they have achieved so far. I just do worry that that as they move into phase two operations and try to go on the offensive and gain more territory, uh, that that they get overextended. It might might be a, a, a brilliant gamble, but it is a gamble. So this this really just takes me to like getting down to just very simple numbers and logistics. How do the PDF's capabilities overall compare with the Thermidor's capabilities currently? And what do you think uh, is like? Do you think that that comparison is going to change over the coming months, or God forbid, potentially years? Um. <laughs> The PDFs have clearly grown uh, in size, in strength, in their arms. Uh, their logistics have improved, um, and certainly their morale is very high. Um, they're still believe that they are fighting a just war, a largely defensive war. Um, so I, I think those are really important things. Um, especially the morale piece, the discipline piece, the, the knowledge that the public, as they march through a town, uh, people are running out and giving them food uh, 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 or, or donations, small things just to help them uh, win this war. Um, that's very different from, from the Tatmadaw, which has no legitimacy. Um, their goal is to terrorize the population into submission. And uh, they, but what they lack in terms of morale, and, and morale's got to be plummeting within the ranks of the Tatmadaw. 20 months into this, they, they, they are losing ground. They have not uh, uh, prevented the PDFs from emerging. They have not. Uh, uh, stopped uh, the PDFs from expanding their uh, control. Um, and we're starting to see the frustration build up, you know, the rotation of the generals within the SAC. This week, we saw the first light infantry division, uh, battal- excuse me, uh, light infantry division battalion uh, commander uh, uh, recalled to the capital, lost his job uh, because of losses. Um, so morale's got to be very, very low within the military. But at the end of the day, they will always have those material advantages. Um, they will always be better armed. They will always have a steadier supply of weapons. They will always have more mobility. They will have artillery. They will have some air power. Um, but it you know, any war comes down to, you know, this this tension between the material and the moral. And right now, uh, the the NUG clearly has the moral upper hand. The question is, can they sustain it if this becomes a protracted conflict? And speaking of the long term, uh what what do we envision for the PDF in the future? Like if if this conflict does end, let's say reasonably quickly, is the PDF going to become a military? Is there going to be a problem in Myanmar with hundreds of thousands of people who have come into possession of arms and are 
probably not going to be receiving the necessary psychological care that they need to deal with combat trauma? Or will it smoothly just transition into a new military force? I, I am terrified about this question. Um, I could easily see the NUG winning the war and losing the peace. And, and they could lose the peace, you know, because they have are unable to fulfill the aspirations of, of the EAOs and establish a true uh, uh, federal democracy. Um, but I'm also really concerned about what happens with all these hundreds of PDFs out there. Will there uh, be a process of demobilization? Will there be a process of turning in weapons? If so, who runs it? Who funds it? Will there be a gun buyback program? Will the international community put money on the table for this? Um, and all of those, and, and we've studied those in different ceasefires. So I, I've looked at those questions in Aceh and in Indonesia or Mindanao and the Philippines. Um, you know, getting back control of weapons is not easy. Uh, they will always, uh, 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 you are always going to have some spillover uh, that they will never get back all the weapons that, that, that proliferated during the conflict. Um, all of this is tied into a much larger uh, and more important question, though. What does the military of a future Myanmar look like, right? And you were hinting at this in an earlier question, and that is, you know, this, this civil war right now is an opportunity to fundamentally reorganize the military, to reorient their role in society, their role in politics, their role in the economy. Um, this is an incredible opportunity to rethink civil-military relations in this country, uh, which is why I think it's imperative that the NUG wins, because if they don't, this cycle of military abuse uh, will continue. Uh, and it will continue for decades. Um, so I hope now there are people both within the NUG, within the international donor community that are starting to plan for what a post-conflict Myanmar looks like, right? How do you get back some of those weapons? How do you demobilize troops? How do you start to reward members of PDF for their service? Are they going to demand positions in the military or security forces as a reward? What happens if they, the state doesn't can't provide those? Are they going to rebel? We saw that in East Timor. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm throwing out some hypotheticals, but but they're hypotheticals based on things we've seen in other kind of post-conflict zones in the past. Mm. And I, I really hope that people are starting to give these important long-term uh, issues some consideration and not just focused on on the problems of today. Or even potentially the long protracted conflict between the NUG and the EAOs Yeah, if, if things go horrendously. Um, so I'm very conscious of your time. So I think this is a reasonably natural uh, place for us to to stop, but as it, as is our custom, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to 
leave our audience with any thoughts on on this topic that we've covered today. It's quite a broad topic, but anything that you think people should keep in their minds going forward and keep uh, aware of whenever they engage in discussion on uh, the PDF, on the the revolution, on the EAOs, and and the NUG's place in the whole thing. Um, again, right now, the center of gravity uh, for the NUG is their alliance structure. Um, they have to work very hard to maintain positive relations with the different ethnic armed organizations. They have to continue to cultivate those relations. They cannot take it for granted. Uh, the military is going to try to peel off support. Uh, they are going to try to cut deals with these different EAOs and, and other uh, uh, groups out there uh, to try to weaken. And, and the NUG has to be very aware this is happening. They have to be proactive and always maintain their commitment to their political instinct. for a lot of podcast listeners, as soon as the fundraising requests start up, you kind of just zone out and skip ahead till it's over. But I ask that if you've taken the time to listen to our full podcast, that you also take the time to consider our spiel. Some may assume that producing a two-hour episode wouldn't take much more time than the conversation itself. But so much goes into it. In advance of the interview, our content team reviews the biography and relevant works of the upcoming guest, and we discuss the best way to use our limited time together. After the interview is complete, the raw audio file is sent to our sound engineer who shapes it into working order. A single episode can take several full days of solid production work in the studio, which is then carefully coordinated with our content team to ensure smooth listening. Further edits and post-production magic bring the eventual episode to your ears, along with extensive written descriptions of each interview, which we publish on our blog and on social media as well. Many of these steps require an outlay of funds in some way or another. We hope that each episode helps to inform you about the ongoing crisis. And if you find it of value, we also hope that you can consider supporting our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. 
In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.